We will remain standing for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 3. Have you found it? No. No, over there. Yes, over there. Yes. Look at that. So thus far, just saying, the right side's got you guys kind of covered. Oh, goodness. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through the end of the chapter. This is God's word for, the, for us this morning. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray together. Lord, again, we would ask you, please add your blessing to what we do, to our study of your word, to our response to your doctrine, to your truth. Um, What we're saying is true. God, speak and teach us who you are and teach us your grace. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You guys can be seated. In, um, in many ways, the Bible is an ancient tale of a hero king. The Bible is the sort of story that epic fiction writers have tried to create for generations, right? The difference is the Bible is far grander, far more beautiful, and it's actually true, which does make it different, right? Well, in the Old Testament... What do we see? We see people who rebel against God and they earn for themselves terrible consequences. But God doesn't deliver all the consequences that he could have. God is kind. God is gracious. God is merciful. Instead of destroying the people that he created, God points them towards someone to come. One who would destroy the main enemy and set right everything that's gone wrong. And as the story unfolds, there are other promises that arise. The promise comes out that the one to come is going to be king. King over the whole world forever. Think about how many great epics. And, you know, again, if you're not a reader, I guess you can go movies here. But think about how many great tales show us the broken kingdom awaiting the arrival of the promised king to fix what's broken. Think of how many of them, let us see the beautiful scene, even if the work isn't completely done yet, you get to see that's the one, that's the king, that's the promised one. He's on his way. He's about to make it right. Well, in today's passage in Matthew's gospel, we're really going to see the anointing of God's promised king. Jesus shows up on the scene for the first time as an adult. And we see that God makes it unquestionably clear. Jesus is the one he's been promising and promising for generation after generation. 
Now, if you're a note taker, and again, a couple of you are, right? You can be ready for five points, but each point begins with the same two words because it's the ultimate point of a passage like this, worship Jesus. So we're going to see five ways to or reasons to worship Jesus, God's promised king. So you ready? Point number one, worship Jesus in the ordinance of baptism. Worship Jesus in the ordinance of baptism. Or you can just say worship Jesus through baptism. That's fine. Look at verse 13 where we get started. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Now last week we saw John the Baptist. He was performing his public ministry. He was baptizing people who were turning away from their sins and getting ready for the arrival of the Messiah. And the Old Testament predicted God was going to send somebody before the promised king to prepare his way to make the people ready for his arrival. And we see here, John is the man. John's the one. And John shows us that the one to come after him is far greater than John is himself. Now, really, before we even look at today's passage, I kind of need to follow up on something I said last week. I promised you last week that I would take a moment to talk about what it was John was doing. Because he's baptizing, right? And what John did is like and unlike what we do today, that is Christian baptism. And so we need to think about what does it mean that people were being baptized by John and how does it compare to what we do in baptism today? What John was doing was different. Now, in fact, what John the Baptist was doing... By the way, just so you know, John the Baptist is a descriptor of what the guy did that wasn't like his name. He wasn't born and then mom didn't go, oh, you're going to, we're just going to call you John the Baptist. It wasn't a denominational thing. It was just, it was just, that's what he did. And so they called him that. Well, no Jewish leaders in the past had been doing things like what John was doing. Uh, He wasn't doing the same basic ceremonial washings you saw priests do every day in the temple. Uh, What John did was a one-time thing. The closest thing to what John was doing that the culture of his day knew about was something that they called proselyte baptism. A proselyte is a a convert to the faith, right? Somebody somebody who's coming in. So if, if a Gentile wanted to come in to be part of the Jewish faith, the nation, they would make them be immersed in water as a way to kind of wash away the Gentile dirtiness so they could be welcomed into the nation of Israel. But what's interesting and what really made him stand out was John was baptizing Israelites which kind of freaked some people out, by the way. And it showed that followers of the law of the Jews even needed to step away from their sin so they could be ready for the arrival of the king that God had been promising. But see, that's really not the same as what we're doing today. John's baptism was, I'm repenting to get ready for the king to come. It it reminds me a lot, by the way, of the command that God made in Exodus 19, verses 10 and 11, where God told the people, hey, I'm coming to talk to you. Get cleaned up. He said, wash your clothes, and then on the third day I'm going to come speak to you. And what John was doing looks like that, right? As you declare yourself, I'm doing my best to clean up so I can meet the king. Well, Christian baptism isn't like that. Our baptism 
is the immersion of a believer in water as a declaration that they've actually already met the Messiah. We baptize as a picture. It's a visual declaration of what we have believed. We believe that Jesus died and was buried and was raised back up to life, right? We, we declare when we're baptized that we died to ourselves and we were raised to a new life in, uh, of walking in the finished work of Christ. We're not saying when we're baptized, God, I'm really trying to be good so that I can be ready for you. We're declaring that the king has come, that we've already met him, and that we have now become his subjects. But I can tell you this, guys. The Bible and church history is very clear that every believer in the Lord Jesus should be baptized. That means that every believer should be immersed in water as a way to publicly declare the transformation that took place because of their salvation. Baptism is an act of obedience, it's an act of worship, it's an act of testimony. And you might say to me, why do you keep saying immersed, right? Doesn't that sound like I'm being all formal? First, one of the reasons I'm saying the word immersed so many times is that's what the word baptized means. It means to dip, to dunk, or as I heard one pastor say, put under till you bubble. (laughs) That was the same man that actually said, he was asked once, how long do you hold someone underwater when they're baptized? And he said, we put them under until they say tithe. But um, <laughs> we don't do that here, just so you know. But the word means, baptize means immerse or dip. The second reason I keep using that word is throughout the history of the church, it's been commonly understood that immersion in water is the most accurate understanding of baptism. It's the best practice. It's the best way to depict the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. So, I mean, one, it's what the word means. Two, it is what church historians, what scholars, what what the founders of even denominations that don't always baptize through immersion these days, all of them said that's the best practice. And like I said, thirdly, to baptize someone, to put them underwater and bring them out, does the best job of depicting death, burial, and resurrection of the life and death of Jesus and of of the... uh, of your new life in Christ. So, as a church, if there's anybody who's part of our church or wants to be part of our church who has not been baptized as a believer, as an act of obedience, as an act of worship, we, we want you to. A couple of weeks ago, we baptized five people, which was a lot of fun. We'd love to keep that up. And so, if you think you might need to follow Christ in baptism, let me know. If you have questions, come talk to me. I'll be happy to help you any way that I can to help you worship Jesus in the ordinance of baptism. But, okay, that's the, the, again, the sort of lecture I promised you guys last week. But we'll stop and we'll get back into the story here. Point number two, worship Jesus through an attitude of humility. Worship Jesus through an attitude of humility. Uh, verse 14, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? So Jesus comes up to the Jordan River. He wants to be baptized by John the Baptist. And John is just stunned. I mean, last week we saw John refuse to baptize the Pharisees or the Sadducees because they were not repenting of their sin. They were not worthy of John's baptism. This is the exact opposite. John doesn't believe that he or his baptism are worthy of Jesus. And the way this verse is worded... 
John is pretty strongly and repeatedly objecting to Jesus' request to be baptized. John is like, look, I need Jesus to baptize me. I don't need to be the one baptizing Jesus. He doesn't believe he has any business baptizing Jesus. Now, how does John know Jesus doesn't need to be baptized for repentance? Does he recognize that Jesus is the sinless Son of God? Is what John's doing influenced by things that his mother Elizabeth told him about Jesus? Truth is, we don't know. We really don't know how John knows. If you study the gospel according to Luke, you might get some ideas, but Matthew tells us nothing about it. But there's something about what either John perceives or already knows about Jesus that says to him, Jesus is the one that John has been predicting. John can tell that Jesus doesn't need to repent of sin. He's got an inkling that Jesus is the king to come whose way he's been sent to prepare. And for the reader of Matthew's gospel, the statement from John shows us a lot about who Jesus is, right? Back in verse 11, John pointed out the one to come is so much greater than John that John's not even worthy to untie the man's shoes, Earlier in the chapter, in verse 3, Matthew told us John is the one sent to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord, predicted by Isaiah. But see, back in Isaiah's prophecy, that one to come, that's the revelation of the glory of God himself. So folks, we need to grasp this. If Jesus is so much greater than John, he's pretty special. If Jesus is the promised king to come, He's really extremely special. But if Jesus is the revelation of the glory of God, he's more than special. He's God who came to earth to be the promised king. This is just a hint of why we worship Jesus. But even before we see how Jesus responds to John, we can learn from John something of value. We want to worship Jesus through an attitude of humility. Humility involves having a properly low view of yourself in comparison to the perfection of God. Any view of self that makes me big and God small is improper. But views of life that show God is great and me as the servant, those are good views. And the Bible is way more concerned that we have a proper view of God than it is about us having a comfortable view of self. Now, don't get me wrong. Do we have value? You bet we do. We matter. But we need to grasp, friends, that the value that we have is only there because God chose to give us value. That's what makes us worth something. So examine your own life with me and ask, do I see myself with a properly low view? Now, don't hear me asking you to beat yourself up. Don't hear me asking you to be harsh and ugly toward yourself. I am a worm. You know, that's not what I'm after. That's not God's not after this. It's not about depression, but it's about looking at John 
and saying, be ready without any hesitation to declare yourself to be a sinner in need of grace. If you're left in your sin, you're in big, big trouble. But, but see yourself rightly when compared to the perfection of God. Third point. Worship Jesus through obedience to God's commands. Verse 15. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So John tells Jesus, I don't think it's right for a sinner to baptize somebody who doesn't need to repent. Good argument. You know what I love? Jesus doesn't object to that argument. You know, Jesus doesn't say, no, John, really, I'm no better than you. He didn't say anything like that. Jesus just says, I mean, look, Jesus didn't have sin to repent of. Jesus is not going to pretend that that John is on Jesus' level because he's not. But what Jesus says to John indicates to us Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. It feels uncomfortable. It feels even wrong for Jesus to submit to John's baptism. But Jesus says, listen, John, put up with it. Put up with this awkwardness and go through with the ceremony. Why? All Jesus says is, this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Now, Scholars will debate the phrase, fulfill all righteousness, and they don't ever really come up with a solid landing point as to what was Jesus telling John. For example, there's no general command that faithful Israelites were supposed to be baptized. So that's not what Jesus was saying. Neither is there a reason that Jesus had to be baptized for repentance because Jesus has no sin to repent of. Some people would say, well, Jesus was baptized to give his disciples an example to follow. Now, by the way, that's true that when we're baptized, we're following the example of Jesus. But when we realize that John's baptism is different than what Christian baptism is exactly, it's hard to say that that's exactly what was going on here. Maybe one reason it was appropriate for Jesus to be baptized involved his role as the Suffering servant and sacrificial substitute. See, Jesus is God, perfect and sinless. But he came to earth on a mission and he lowered himself in humility in order to rescue the children of God. He he took on himself the very nature of a servant like Paul wrote in Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8. And going through a baptism of repentance, even though he had no sin personally to repent of, well, that's the kind of humble thing that the sacrificial Savior would play. Again, he's not just the promised king. He's the promised and perfect sacrifice for our sins. So maybe that's what was going on. Or maybe Jesus had to be baptized as an act of obedience so that the Father could do what he's about to do in a couple verses. Because what God says next is pretty important. But what's most important here, guys, is the fact that Jesus knew for him to do everything right, he had to obey the call of God for him to be baptized. It doesn't matter why the Father wanted Jesus to be baptized. What matters is that the Father wanted it, that it was right, 
And that Jesus did it. This is what I like to refer to as the holy, I said so. Which we need a lot more of in our lives, by the way. We don't have to understand all the whys. Now, when thinking theologically about what Jesus does here, there's something to grasp. It is vital for us that Jesus fulfill all righteousness. Jesus couldn't merely be a person who didn't do bad things. That's not enough. It's not enough that Jesus avoids wrong. He fulfilled all the law. He intentionally fulfilled the promises and the prophecies of the Old Testament. Jesus didn't just avoid breaking the law. He perfectly completed it. So his record is both without negative and completely full of positive. Jesus didn't just avoid sin. He filled his life with right actions that perfectly pleased the Father. Folks, we need Jesus. Because none of our lives are full of perfect righteousness on our own. No matter how hard you try, you will never, not ever, so long as you have skin on, perfectly do everything rightly. Not during this season of life. You will, from time to time, do that which you should not. When's the last time you did something you shouldn't do? Don't tell me about it specifically, just, you know... And you will also from time to time fail to do that which you should do. Here's the thing. We need to remember how significant it is that God is willing, get this, to both count Jesus as guilty of our sin and count us as righteous before God because of Jesus' finished work. Romans 5, 18 and 19 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Or 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you hear that? Jesus gets our record of sin, we get his record of righteousness. Do you grasp, Christians, that the Father has counted to Jesus' account your sin and your transgression. Do you buy that? That's easier for us, actually. Do you grasp that the wrath that God had for your sin was completely, perfectly exercised at the death of Jesus on the cross? You with me there? However mad God was at your sin, he poured out on Jesus. You, if you got that, good. But if you stop there, you've only got half the point. Also know that the perfect life that Jesus lived is credited to your account so that as the Father sees you, he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Is it just me or is that one harder to actually accept? But it's true. The, the Bible theology term for that is imputation. 
God declaring you righteous even if you've never lived out that perfection? That's good. Let me ask you, do you think that we look at this truth and therefore stop obeying God? That was the argument raised against this theology, by the way. They threw it at Paul. But what did Paul say? What then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? God forbid. That's dumb. Our desire should be to please the God who saved us. Our desire should be to begin to live more and more of what God already says is true about us. Our hearts should find their greatest joy in doing what shows off the greatness and glory of God. When we obey, we show the world around us that God is worthy. That satisfies our souls. It honors our Lord. And so the call here in this point is that we want to worship Jesus through obedience to the commands of God. We want to worship through obedience. Keep this thought a little bit in your mind. We're going to come back to it once more before we're done, Lord willing. Point number four. Worship Jesus because he's God the Son. Worship Jesus because he is God the Son. Verses 16 and 17 And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus gets baptized, he comes up out of the water, something amazing happens. We have a behold here, right? Whoa, this is amazing. First, the heavens are opened. Something happens that shows the curtain pulled back and the spiritual world revealed. And this happens in the Bible at significant moments, right? Think about the book of Ezekiel. Think about the book of Revelation when God speaks to his children. Every once in a while, he'll rip the curtain back so we can see that this world is more than the physical world that we see. And then we see the Spirit of God, like a landing dove, come down and rest on Jesus and land there. Uh, By the way, try not to picture a bird right now. And what I mean by that is this. I don't think Matthew is trying to say that the Holy Spirit like transformed into dove man. The Spirit came down from above and alighted on Jesus in a similar fashion that a dove might do. I don't know that we have to assume he had wings. Maybe, but I don't think that's the point. The point is the Spirit came down out of the sky and rested on Jesus like a dove left resting on a branch. Then we get another behold, because this is even more amazing, and we hear the voice of the Father God speak, and he says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So the presence of the Spirit, we have the voice of the Father, and they combine to bear witness to the identity and the mission of the Lord Jesus in a way that nothing else ever could have. Because in a very real sense here, we are seeing the anointing of the King who will come to rule. You remember in the old days when they would, they would anoint a king, right? They'd take a horn of oil and they'd pour it on the guy's head to say, this is the king. How do you know he's the king? He's the guy with the greasy hair. Uh, I just thought of that. That feels awkward to me. Um, Anoint me with shampoo. Uh, Anyway, the the idea is that they would pour some oil on a person. They would mark him. This is the chosen one. Here, God himself, with sight, with sound, with spirit, with voice, says, this is Jesus. 
This is the king. This is my son. Now, God may be bringing to the minds of those who know the Old Testament well a couple passages. Consider this. This is from Isaiah, and it's about someone on whom God puts his spirit and in whom he delights. Sounds like what he just said, right? Listen to Isaiah 42, 1-8. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, just like we just saw. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. It's possible that God, in his declaration at the river, is telling everybody Jesus is the coming servant king who's going to rule the nations. He's going to be the one who is gentle, not bruising, uh, not breaking a reed, not snuffing out a wick, right? He, he's going to be gentle. He's going to bring justice. He's going to make a covenant with the people. God even says in that passage, I'm not going to give my glory to anybody other than me. So for God to glorify Jesus in this moment is for God to declare Jesus to be one with God. Or how about Psalm chapter 2? Because there again is some kingly son of God language. Psalm 2, listen to 7 through 12. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now listen. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the end of the earth end of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So Jesus is identified by God as his beloved what? His son. Which indicates sonship and kingship. Jesus is going to rule with justice and he's going to have mercy on those who come to him for shelter. So right here, by the way, in one snapshot moment in the New Testament, we see the Holy Trinity in place. God the Son, right there in the water. God the Holy Spirit, descending and resting on the Son. God the Father, speaking. God is one God who eternally exists as three persons. And how beautiful it is, God lets us see it right here. Jesus is the Son. 
He's worthy of worship. He and the Father are of the same substance. We read that in our affirmation of the creed today. When Matthew shows us God the Father called Jesus his son, Matthew is telling us a couple things. He's telling us this is really the offspring of God the Father. We saw that in Matthew chapter 1, right? I mean, the virgin conceiving, bearing a son, he really is son of God. But we also know that Jesus being called son of God is fulfilling the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and the King. Because, as we saw in Psalm 2, God refers to the ruling king of Israel as his son. So friends, worship Jesus. Why? Because he's God the Son. Worship him as God in flesh who came to earth. Bow before him as your just and merciful king. Declare him to be your Lord, your master, your ruler. And come to him for mercy and find it in his willingness to receive anybody who will come to him in truth. All right, last point, point number five. And I have to tell you, this is the most fun one for me. There are some sermons you get to the point, you're like, this is the one I really think God wants us to hear today. Worship Jesus, number five, because he pleases the Father for you. Worship Jesus because he pleases the Father for you like on your behalf. Verse 17 again, God the Father said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Please stay with me for this because we've already seen this a touch. What does the Father say he feels toward Jesus here? He's loved and he is well pleased. With Jesus. The Father is delighted in the perfection and the obedience of Jesus. But remember, please, that if you come to Jesus, God counts you as in Christ. God counts us as united with the person and work of Jesus. God imputes to us, grants to our account, the very righteousness of the Son in whom He is delighted. Now you guys know, when you think about John MacArthur, you really think of a really softy of a pastor, right? Just a real quiet, gentle, easygoing spirit. If you say yes to this, you don't know John MacArthur. He's got some, he swings a big hammer. He's not a wimp. Listen to MacArthur's words here. As believers, we too are a delight to the Father because we are now in the Son. Because the Father finds no imperfection in the Son, He now, by His grace, finds no imperfection in those who trust in Him. To be absolutely clear, what I'm saying here, I'm saying only to those who have turned from their sins and fully trusted in Jesus to become children of God. But Christians, we worship Jesus because he has already fully pleased the Father on our behalf. So Christian, 
God the Father looks at you with delight. Do not, if you love the gospel, allow yourself to believe that the Father dislikes you or is disappointed in you if you're a believer. All the disappointment went to Jesus on the cross. And what the Father has for his children now, for those who have come to Christ, is delight. Christ loves the church, his bride. The Father loves his children. We are so covered by the grace of Christ as to be a joy to our Lord. So worship Jesus because he has pleased the Father for you. Friends, there's a lot of beauty in the baptism of Jesus. God is anointing Jesus as the king. It's not changing Jesus at all, by the way. He was always going to be the Messiah. This didn't change a thing. But it shows us formally that Jesus is exactly who God promised. And our right response to this is to worship Jesus. And if you haven't come to Jesus for grace, your first act should be to confess your sin, to believe in Jesus, to declare him to be your king, and to run to him as fast as you can to get mercy. If you need help to know how to do that, come talk to me when we're done here today. If you are a believer, worship Jesus by obeying the commands of God, by having an attitude of humility. Worship Jesus because he's God the Son who pleases the Father on your behalf, which is the only way that we sinners could ever please our Lord. Thank him. Love him. Follow him with the joy of the forgiven. Let's bow together and pray. Lord, there are a thousand things we could say. God, in my own heart, I think my biggest thought right now is to say thank you. That you would let Jesus be righteous so that I could be seen as righteous is magnificent. We're not naturally good. We are sinners. But to think that you would see us with a delight because of your son's finished work, if our souls would get that, I think we would be completely overjoyed. So for those who are Christians here, Lord, help them to see it. Help them to see how great it is to be a child of God to be not only forgiven of our wrong, but to be delighted in by a Lord who sees us as perfect in Christ. Help us not to have a wrong picture, God, of your face. Because you don't hate us. Because you're not mad at us. Because all of that was taken care of by Jesus. Lord, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, help them to see that that grace is available to them too. Let us obey you not to earn something, but out of just sheer joy of honoring you. Be magnified. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.
Let's stand together. We're going to sing a song of response to our holy God, and then uh, we'll continue from there.